Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Native voting advocates are keeping a close watch on legislation and other efforts they say could hinder voter access. Heading into an election year in which control of the Oval Office and both houses of Congress are at stake, candidates recognize the power of Native voters to make a big difference in several key places. We'll get a look at the voting access landscape and some areas of concern by Native voting rights watchers. That's coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Sarah Hill, the former Attorney General of the Cherokee Nation, has made history with her confirmation to serve as the first female Native American federal judge in Oklahoma. Hill, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, was confirmed Tuesday by the U.S. Senate to serve on the United States District Court for the Northern District of Oklahoma. In November, during her nomination hearing, the Senate Judiciary Committee questioned Hill about tribal sovereignty and challenges she faced as tribal judge. Post McGirt especially has been very, it's been very challenging. There's been a great increase in the number of criminal cases that are being heard. Tribal Indian tribes have jurisdiction over crimes committed by Indians um, across their Indian country. So throughout the reservation of the Cherokee Nation, the Cherokee Nation has jurisdiction and the Office of the Attorney General is responsible for prosecuting those. So as the Attorney General, um, it has been the responsibility post-maker to scale up that office in a way that uh, so we were able to handle all the different cases that, that came to us. And I think that you know, that's something that for people who have Indian country in their districts are probably more familiar with that process and may not be that familiar to other people. Hill was also asked if she would serve differently on the federal bench. Certainly, a district court judge um, for the United States is an entirely different job than the job of an advocate. As attorney general, of course, I was an advocate for the tribe's legal position and for its rights. Like all attorneys, I would advocate on behalf of my client with Every, all the intellect and um, all of the strategic thought I could put into it on behalf of the nation. For a federal district judge, uh, the, it's an entirely different job. The job is to look at all the cases that come before you um, impartially um, and fairly and looking at everything on their own terms and, and then applying the facts to the law. And it's a much different role entirely. The Cherokee Nation celebrated her confirmation as well as a group of national native organizations. They say Hill brings a critical perspective and deep knowledge of federal Indian law. There are 39 federally recognized tribes in Oklahoma. Young Native people are making strides in leadership. Tribal college students were among tribal leaders at the White House Tribal Nation Summit held this month in Washington, D.C. Saria Taylor, who holds the current title of Miss American Indian Higher Education Consortium, was among them. A lot of the times I think youth are told, you're the voice of the future, you're our future. But in reality, we're the present. I really think we need to be here for these conversations to know what's happening right now today. We will be taking on these positions and we need to learn more about um, what's expected and, you know, just what's happening with our tribes currently. Taylor says one of the themes she heard throughout the summit was efforts to heal tribal communities. I think it is really vital for our communities that we really emphasize the healing aspect. Um, one of the panel members mentioned that he has grandchildren and that, you know, he wants them to be healed also from the trauma that 
occurs and the generational trauma that's passed down. And I thought that was a really beautiful sentiment. Taylor, who promotes wellness in tribal communities, is using her Miss AHEC title to talk about food sovereignty and healing. I think there's a lot of beauty and a lot of livelihood in our food and how we heal as people. Um, so something I've been working on recently is I've been interviewing different indigenous folks and talking about the importance of food to them and how it's helped with their healing journeys. I've learned a lot about how sovereign food is and how much power it holds. Like when we look at corn, um, we can use corn for prayers, we can use corn for toys for children, like with little corn dolls. And um, obviously we use it for food and it has different roles in ceremony. And I think that's really beautiful. Taylor's attending the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico. The senior is studying creative writing, focusing on poetry. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, LLP, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for over 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. When you celebrate responsibly, you ensure holidays filled with joy, love, and cherished moments. And you keep yourself and loved ones safe while setting a positive example. Cheers to safe celebrations. Support by Diageo and the Multicultural Consortium for Responsible Drinking. More at drinkiq.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The San Carlos and White Mountain Apache tribes in Arizona are among those fighting a statewide push to ban ballot drop boxes. The tribes say the ballot drop boxes on their reservations are necessary for voters who face long trips to designated in-person voting locations. They claim getting rid of the boxes disproportionately affects Native voters. Arizona is one of the places that Native voting rights efforts are being watched closely because the power of Native voters is a focus as Arizona emerges as more of a swing state. Today on our show, we'll talk with experts on issues facing Native voters from Alaska to Arizona. We also want to hear from you. Are mail-in ballots helpful to you, or do they raise red flags? What voting barriers are in your community? Join the conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also leave a comment on our social media pages. Joining us now from California is Jacqueline DeLeon. She is a senior attorney for the Native American Rights Fund. She is Isleta Pueblo. Hello, Jacqueline. Welcome back to Native America Calling. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me. Joining us from Washington, D.C. is O.J. Seaman Sr. He is the co-executive director of Four Directions Native Vote. He is Rosebud Sue. Hi, O.J. Great to have you back on the show as well. Oh, Madaki Happy. Thank you for having me back. And joining us from Anchorage, Alaska, is Michelle Spark. She is the director of strategic initiatives at Get Out the Native Vote. She is a member of the Kinishimut tribe of Chivak, Alaska. Good morning, Michelle, and welcome back to NAC. 
Wakashan and the Indian country. Glad to be here. Great to have all of you folks on our show today. Jacqueline, let's start with Arizona. Joe Biden won there in 2020. They have a Democratic governor and districts with major Native representation made a big difference in those races. Heading into the upcoming presidential election, what are the forces at play that NARF is watching in the Grand Canyon state? Yeah, so Arizona, like you say, um, is a critical state in the um, upcoming presidential election, and Native Americans have the power there to really um, swing uh, the election. Um, And unfortunately, every time we see Native Americans flex their political power, there's a corresponding backlash, and and we've seen that in Arizona. So, you know, the Arizona legislative session, they passed a law um, following the election that required a proof of location of residence um, that NARF had to challenge there um, because, you know, we know that 40,000 homes, um, uh, Native homes, don't have addresses on them. And we knew that that was going to be difficult. So we were able to secure a victory for voters there. And now, um, you know, uh, and that that was, you know, on behalf of of our incredible tribal clients. Um, And now, you know, we're standing with the San Carlos Apache Tribe and White Mountain Apache Tribe um, in a case where, um, you know, some individual actors are trying to to challenge ballot drop boxes in Arizona. Um, And we know that ballot drop boxes are critical um, in Arizona because of um, the structural issues with mail, you know, the poor mail service that we receive, the longer it takes um, for ballots to be delivered, um, and, um, you know, the inconsistency in so much of the mail service. And so ballot drop boxes are really critical on Indian lands. But really, you know, what this shows, what both of these cases show, um, that, you know, Native Americans flex their political power, um, and, you know, there are attempts then to um, make it more difficult for Natives to vote. And this most recent case with San Carlos and White Mountain Apache, um, how confident are you that those tribes will win with regard to this ban on these ballot drop boxes? Uh, we'll see. Um, you know, it's always, you know, this is in state court, um, uh, and um, we are moving right now to intervene in that case. Um, so we're waiting to hear back uh, whether we'll be allowed in because um, we're moving, um, you know, at, uh, to defend the the current state of the law, um, and you know that'll go up uh, to the Arizona State Supreme Court. Um, you know those are uh, so. So you know I think that on the merits we are certainly in the right here, um, and uh, you know ballot drop. OJ, I want to bring you into the conversation now. Uh, you're with Four Directions Native Vote. What races will you be paying close attention to in 2024? We're just going to shift here. We have a little bit of technical difficulty with Jacqueline. Yeah, um, we're actually looking at Michigan, Wisconsin, Nevada, uh, Montana, and Arizona. Uh, All of those are going to be uh, key states, not only for the presidential race, but for senatorial races uh, within those states themselves. So, we're going to pay very close attention. Uh, we are going to ensure that the tribes in Nevada are able to have their early satellite voting offices. Uh, so we're basically already in those states, knocking on doors and, and visiting with uh, different tribal members uh, to ensure that things are moving along 
I can't say smoothly in Indian country because that never happens uh, when you have a, a county and state government trying to uh, throw some sand in the gear. But that's what we're doing. Well, let's talk a little bit more about Nevada. Uh, Duck Valley Reservation recently taking up a case with support from Four Directions. Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, what happened was is they uh, kept on requesting, and, and under Nevada law, in their constitution, they're supposed to allow satellite offices for tribes throughout the uh, state of Nevada. They applied for and they went through the proper procedure uh, to get a satellite office and were totally ignored. Matter of fact, what they were offered was like two days of voting, uh, and they finished voting prior to the actual election on Thursday uh, prior to the election. So uh, we joined forces with the tribe. Uh, we filed in state court because after the Supreme Court ruling, it's not really smart to uh, try to take a federal case. Uh, and <clears throat> we were able uh, to bring Elko County to the table to start uh, visiting with us. Um, we secured uh, a week of early voting there. Uh, we were able to have voting uh, on election day there. Uh, and again, because we got in so late. Uh, but the cool part was we also secured an equal date, time, and place for satellite office to be on the Duck Valley uh, Indian Reservation for the mere hours of the election office in Elko. And what's so cool about that, it takes place uh, in this election in 2024. And it happens to be the same time, uh, 100 years later, uh, that we were given citizenship. So, you know, the tribal members in Duck Valley have been fighting for over 100 years uh, before they actually got equality. So that's one of the things that we want to really uh, celebrate uh, this coming com coming election is to uh, show their resilience and how they, their, their continued quest for equality paid off, even if it took 100 years. That's really auspicious, OJ. Now, early satellite offices, ballot drop boxes, mail-in voting, OJ, what else needs to happen to make elections more accessible in general for Native voters? Well, basically equality, not equity, but equality. So that means that whatever the individual living off reservation is afforded to, to vote, uh, they should be allowed it. And in an Indian country, in some cases, other things should be allowed. You know, one of the, the things that we saw in Arizona and, you know, you heard about the post office, but you have to look at the, the, the systemic racism, even with the post office. It started when the Army started going into these territories. And then it went from uh, the Army, then it went to the agent, and then it went to trading posts. There was never really a U.S. post office on the reservation. And so you don't get the same hours, you don't get the same days. And in most cases, you send a letter off on a reservation of Scottsdale, Arizona. You send a letter off, uh, more than likely the next day, the election office is going to get it. So your ballot's going to be counted two days later. But if you're on Navajo or if you're on, on, on some of the other reservations in Arizona, what takes one day in Scottsdale takes 10 days or 12 days or 15 days 
from the reservation. So even if you use mail-in ballot and you got it on the day it was supposed to be uh, received and you sent it in, your vote still might not get counted because the fact is the mail system does not treat tribes as the same or tribal members the same, and it takes longer for your mail to get to the election office. And we know this because what we did is we went to all the reservation or all the communities on the Navajo and we sent certified letters to everybody and we were able to track the days uh, that it took from um, one reservation to another or to the election office versus Scottsdale to the election office and, and it was just night and day as far as uh, the time uh, it took so drop boxes uh, are needed on reservations because all, the mail system don't work for tribes or tribal members either. Well, OJ, that discrepancy in the time there between what you tested and, and what the Postal Service was delivering, I mean, do you think those are just honest flaws in, in the postal system, or is there something at work there? Well, you know, the mail system was never created for tribes or tribal members, and therefore the United States Post Office has never really looked at uh, working with tribes to create actual post offices that aren't contract post offices or trading posts or, or things where the, they can you know, open up on Wednesday and, and close on Thursday. Uh, th- this is something that actually has to be you know, dealt with by the United States Post Office and, and the, uh, the tribes to achieve fair election. Okay. We're talking with O.J. Seaman Sr. about uh, the upcoming elections in 2024. Give us a call. 1-800-99-NATIVE. The Northern Lights are more than a dazzling light show in the night sky. They're the source of traditional stories and wisdom. A new book looks at the Aurora Borealis from both the Western science and indigenous wisdom perspectives. We'll learn more about the Northern Lights on the next Native America Calling. It's the holiday and everyone looks forward to friends and family and sharing in the joy of the season. So remember to celebrate responsibly. The holidays often include enjoying a drink or two, so it's crucial to remember moderation is vital. Here's a tip to help you celebrate responsibly. Set a limit. Decide in advance how many drinks you'll have and stick to it. You can also alternate alcoholic beverages with water or other non-alcoholic options. Happy holidays. Support by Diageo and the Multicultural Consortium for Responsible Drinking. More at drinkiq.com. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. We're taking a look at voting rights issues affecting Native voters nationally, from redistricting to proposed bans on ballot drop boxes. Join this conversation. The number is 1-800-996-2848. Tell us about any voter access issues where you live, whether you live on a reservation, whether you live in an urban community, let us know. one 800 99Native. And a reminder, you can listen back to this show and past shows on all major podcast platforms such as Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And you can listen to other types of Native programming by downloading the NV1 app to your smart device. Jacqueline DeLeon is one of our guests today. She is a senior attorney for the Native American Rights Fund. And Jacqueline, before break, we were talking a little bit about the political landscape right now in Arizona. 
And I know that the losing candidate for governor there, uh, now Senate candidate Carrie Lake, is continuing with these accusations of voter fraud. What's the impact of that discourse, uh, especially with regard to the native districts there in the state of Arizona? Yeah, so these false allegations of voter fraud are actually really dangerous, not because they're going to, you know, necessarily overturn an election and somebody's going to believe, ultimately believe these allegations of voter fraud, but rather because these allegations of voter fraud begin this, you know, witch hunt where they start, you know, looking for, um, you know, any evidence that they can find for fraud, even though there isn't any, right? And then the legislature responds to this false call of fraud with legislation that takes it. Right, we're having a little bit of trouble with Jacqueline. I'm going to go back to O.J. Siemens. And O.J., um, you were telling us about some of the challenges there with the Postal Service and, and specifically with uh, how long it takes for for the mail to arrive in, in certain Native communities. I'm, I'm also curious, what about for uh, Native folks who are, who are not living on reservations and urban communities and such? Are you seeing any major issues with regard to urban Natives and voter access? Uh, not so much, uh, only, only because the fact is we've been really concentrated on reservations. Uh, but I do know that there are organizations out there that are working with urban, uh, natives, uh, in order to ensure that they, uh, are able to participate in, in the election. And, you know, one of the things I keep bringing up, uh, is the satellite offices, just because that we got them on reservation doesn't stop them from requesting uh, these same satellite offices within the urban uh, native communities. So, I mean, there's still a lot that, that we can do to uh, enhance the uh, native vote, uh, which by the way, I, I predict 2024, you are probably gonna see the record turnout for natives throughout Indian country, especially these battleground states. Uh, but there's work that has to be done in, in order to ensure that happens. Mm-hmm. Now, OJ, we keep talking about how Native voters are increasingly gaining political power, and we're seeing Native votes uh, swinging key races in certain parts of the country. Can you give us any recent examples of uh, Native voters making a measurable difference in any specific elections anywhere in Indian country? Sure. Um, actually, it's pretty pretty cool. If you, you look at Michigan, you look at uh, Wisconsin, uh, you look at Nevada, uh, you look at Arizona, uh, you'll see back in 2016 that the presidential candidates at that time, uh, whatever percentage that they won those states by were the same percentage equal to or greater was the native population. So that native population either equaled what that candidate won by or was greater than what that candidate won by. In 2016, we didn't really have a good ground game in all those states. Uh, 2020 made a big difference because we then did have a good ground game. And if you'll see, every one of those states with that native population uh, was able to, uh, the, the, the percentage of voters increased and the actual outcome of that election was because of that native vote. Thank you, OJ. I'm going to take a call now. Chanupa, who's listening on Keeley in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. 
Hello, Chanupa. Welcome to the show. Wopila to you, Sean. And OJ, this is for you, and I know you're going to agree with me on this. A few years ago, one of our tribal members named Eileen Janice, good sister, she was in tribal government at that time for the district of Pine Ridge. She challenged the federal government through voting of our identity, and they would not recognize our tribal identification. But here's the catch. When the rights to vote, people don't understand this, but they are protected by the federal government. I think it might be the 13th or the 15th Amendment, okay, to the Constitution that uh, specifically it, it spells out that no citizen shall be denied the right to vote in a state or a federal election or on the account of his race. So back then they did that because they wouldn't accept our tribal identification. Now, in all, all and, and I know OJ is going to uh, agree with this part, they say this in Lakota. For bringing this subject up, and I do hope one day, Sean, that you will talk about racism in this country because it's still getting out of hand. And uh, thank you for Jacqueline, and thank you to OJ for bringing this to light with you, Sean, on today's show. Wopila from the Pine Ridge Union Reservation. Ahoo. Chanupa, we sure appreciate that call and uh, you sharing that wisdom and, and that information that you're familiar with. OJ, why don't you go ahead and, and respond to Chanupa specifically with regard to, uh, so are, are there still ongoing issues with tribal IDs being accepted uh, for folks that need to vote? We're, we're talking South Dakota. We're going to have ongoing issues when we get up and go to bed in the morning. But yes, he's right. Uh, one of the things that we did do, though, uh, in, with the state legislatures is that we made it so that if a person had no ID, he would be able to sign an affidavit basically saying or her saying, I am who I am. This is where I live. You could actually ask, ask for that affidavit, not have one ID on you, whether it's tribal, state, anything, passport. You don't need an ID. All you have to do is ask for that affidavit. They are required by law to give it to you. And that affidavit is basically saying, I am who I am and this is where I live. And then you are actually given a official ballot, not a, not a provisional ballot, but an official ballot and allowed to vote. Thank you, OJ. Jacqueline, I want to come back to you and uh, where we left off with regard to accusations of voter fraud uh, with the losing candidate for the Arizona governor's office. Go ahead and uh, pick up where you left off. Sorry about that. So, yeah, so like I was saying, you know, legislator, legislators end up taking advantage of the structural barriers that exist in Indian country. You know, they say that these are neutral laws. You know, oh, we just, you know, now we're going to ban uh, ballot, uh, we're, we're going to ban ballot collection. Now we're going to ban, um, you know, we're, or now we're going to require a proof of residential of address, right? Um, supposedly uh, to counter fraud, even though there's no correlation between those practices and fraud, right? Um, and the reason that they do that is that they know that the impact on Native communities is going to be severe. They know that Native Americans rely on these routes to get their ballots in because of all the reasons that OJ... 
Okay, folks, I uh, apologize that we're just uh, having a tough time connecting with Jacqueline today. But uh, OJ, we're going to swing back to you, brother. You're our, <laughs> you're our, our go-to guy when, when we have the technical problems. But of course, you're just so knowledgeable as well. And um, OJ, what, I, I mean, what are some recent elections here? Uh, any recent elections that have surprised you and with regard to the outcomes or just how voters turned out? And, uh, and and what are people saying about some of those races and, and what made the difference in those key key situations? Well, the, the biggest surprise was in 2016. But moving forward, uh, we, we have seen increased voter, uh, Native American voter turnout throughout Indian country. Uh, we have basically uh, seen from there, back in, we had uh, Native American, the first Native American presidential forums uh, back in uh, 2019, 2020. And at that time, we had then Vice President Biden there. We had then Senator Harris appear at these Native forums talking to tribal leaders. And I call that the spark that lit the fire throughout Indian country because it was then that tribal leaders, tribal members, elders, youth, you know, uh, college students were able to, to communicate with these politicians, and they were able to learn something about Indian country. But what, what I'm saying is it was that spark and that fire in 2020 that allowed us to have uh, Secretary Deb Holland uh, as the Secretary of Interior. Now, a lot of people may or may not know, but the War Department used to be uh, what the interior was uh, took over. So the interior used to be the War Department. So I'll call Auntie Deb the Secretary of War. Uh, but you, you see so many young, young, intelligent, bright, native people now within different agencies. They're in, we have them in uh, uh, Treasury. We have them in, in uh, offices, um, budget management. We have them in FEMA. I mean, we because we participated, we were able to fill all of these key positions with natives that could help these agencies understand uh, our, our culture, our tradition, our needs way better. And what I see now is people seeing that and wanting to keep participating in these elections to improve it, uh, not only for our tribe, but for our tribal members. Um, I haven't seen an election right now uh, that I thought would go another way, at least with the, the native vote. The native vote has always been pretty uh, uh, complete when, when it comes to participating uh, since the 2020 election. Well, let's head north now to Alaska, where we have Michelle Spark. Director of Strategic Initiatives at Get Out the Native Vote. And Michelle, I want to thank you again for joining our show. And let's talk about the Center for Public Integrity in this report that they released about a year ago. It noted a high number of rejected ballots in Alaska, especially from rural villages with predominantly Native residents. What can you tell us about that issue? Yeah, yeah. Let me let me paint a little bit of a picture on how this lays out. Um, again, this is only 600,000 registered voters in the state of Alaska. Alaska Natives should make up about one in four voters of that. So we're about a quarter of the vote. And there are 147 
rural, predominantly Native precincts in Alaska out of the 401. So all of those absolutely depend on the Postal Service. Well, uh, it was an all-by-mail voting experience, the first ever conducted in Alaska because we had to meet a 90-day deadline um, to elect and, uh, you know, have a special primary for um, taking up this, uh, the place of Congressman Young's seat when he passed away in his last term. And an all-by-mail voting system was just going to spell a lot of doom for rural because you know, like like OJ was saying earlier, the postal system uh, was not necessarily designed for villages or Indian country or reservations because of the uh, residential challenges we have. Uh, in Alaska, we only have PO boxes, so we have to go to a post office or a contracted space, you know, to pick up our mail. So there's no delivery issue, but getting the mail to these roadless communities is a challenge in and of itself. And two, of those 147 precincts I just mentioned, 75 of those have postal vacancies. And the Postal Service recruits through Indeed.com. And I, I think this kind of feeds into the systemic barriers is if we don't have consistent postal operations, then you're going to have uh, 1,897 ballots rejected because they were postmarked after the election deadline. Now, maybe some of those were a voter error, but maybe they were also a postal error. So it's it's really a bitter pill to swallow. We have almost a 16% rejection rate in our rural communities that have challenging post office um, operations. This is so concerning, Michelle. I mean, what's the solution here? I mean, obviously, we're not at a point where we can do like internet voting or anything like that. So as long as we're dependent on, on the Postal Service uh, for so many of these voters up there in states like Alaska, any possible solutions that you see? Well, you know, we have a new Division of Elections director, and she had asked me what she thought was effective. And the municipality of Anchorage, which which we joke is Alaska's largest village, you know, because we have so many Alaska Natives tribal members that, um, you know, head there for work and for services and such. We joke that, um, well, she asked what was effective for us, and, and you know, the municipality of Anchorage has a very wonderful Dropbox system, and OJ mentioned that, that earlier. We don't have that capacity in the villages. Now, I would love for us to build drop boxes and send them all out there um, and have somebody be able to collect and, um, you know, be able to hand off those ballots to the air carrier that sends it back to the division for processing. But, you know, we still have that critical step with the Postal Service. And I think there needs to be better coordination between the Division of Elections, the United States Postal Service, and even the Air Carriers Association, so that we're all on the same page and we are all prepared for election seasons so that we have all these um, plans in place where we meet the gaps that happen, whether it's by environment, extreme environment, weather conditions, or, you know, um, just the air, air carrier's um, ability to carry, carry mail that day or election materials. Interesting conversation today here on Native America Calling. We are talking about voter access and some of the issues specifically that impact Native voters in tribal communities, in rural communities, in reservation communities. 
uh, issues with regard to the Postal Service and how long it takes for ballots to be mailed, to be shipped, to be sent to election offices, uh, a ban on drop boxes for voters who could just drop their ballots into boxes, other issues as well. And I'd really like to hear from some more callers today. I know we've got one caller on the line, and we're going to hear from her right after this break. But uh, I'd like to hear from some other callers as well. Our phone lines are open, 1-800-996-2848. Tell us about any issues that you see with the elections coming up in 2024 with regard to how the Native vote will be able to access the election and uh, Native voters will be able to cast their votes for the candidates of their choice. So give us a call, 1-800-99-NATIVE. Stay with us. We're going to hear from Donna from Wasilla, Alaska when we come back. Lakota-made indigenous first medicines and eco-friendly personal care products are small batch prepared in the Lakota traditions using sustainably harvested natural and organic ingredients and all can be found at lakotamade.com who support this show. Support by Penguin Random House, publisher of Contenders by Tracy Sorrell, illustrated by Aragon Star, the story of John Mayers and Charles Bender, the first two native pro baseball players to face off in a World Series. This and other stories at prh.com slash stories of the land. You're listening to Native America Calling. We're talking about voting rights issues facing native voters in 2024. If you have a comment or question, call us 1-800-996-2848. And we've got Donna on the line right now. She's listening in Wasilla, Alaska on KNBA. Thanks for calling in today, Donna. Good morning. Good morning. I um, am really excited about Alaskan voters because... um, they're two governors that were married to uh, Native Alaskans, and, you know, they got elected. So I think that in spite of all of the things, obstacles that have to be overcome, that uh, there are people that are getting out and they're voting. And um, so I see tremendous things that can happen in the future, too, uh, with the, the voting. and them getting it straightened out and you know i think we should all think positive about it and all work together and cooperate so because this is important for us to have good leaders donna really appreciate that call and michelle listening to donna in wasilla alaska and talking about just the power of the votes there in the native villages in alaska and have you seen a significant increase in just the political um, political influence of Alaska Native people just within the last 20 years in Alaska? Oh, of course. I mean, it's with the angst of maturity, you know, having been here 50 years, um, becoming uh, acclimated to Western economized um, systems. You know, we we have multi-million dollar um, corporations and companies, and we're one of the largest private sector employees in the state in every region. And uh, there's no doubt that we have an economic influence, um, you know, forming PACs and getting involved with candidacies here and there. But 
it's not being translated necessarily to the turnout. And that's what we're working on with Get Out the Native Vote. In 1982, we had almost a near universal turnout in all of our rural Native communities. We had one village that had 103 voter turnout, 103%. And that is unheard of in most American cities and towns and precincts. And, you know, I went through all of our, I combed through the rolls and I saw all the villages had a 70 to 100% voter turnout. And that shows our capabilities. That shows where we can go with our vote and we can influence statewide and federal elections. But we're, we've dropped uh, an average 70% since 1982 in voter turnout. And so that's what we would like to challenge our communities to do. This is not to shame anyone but to also but to empower them and also help us realize how we're not just a swing vote. We can actually just make a candidate's dreams happen. We can have races happen and we can influence the direction of, of all the uh, decision making that happens that affects our lives every day. Huge drop in participation in the political process that, that you just shared in Alaska over the last several decades. I mean, what do you attribute that to? Why such a dramatic fall in voter turnout in Alaska Native communities? Well, we've been doing a lot of uh, polling, <laughs> informal polling among the community in different regions of the state to try to figure that out. And, and from what it sounds like, because it was a midterm year, it was a Reagan midterm, there was an anti-subsistence provision. It was a public initiative on the ballot, and it was pretty racist, and it was trying to make sure that there was going to be no federal coverage or considerations for the rural Native preference. Now, the state constitution makes Alaskans all equal under their eyes, so they'll, they'll never give you know any one group uh, even if they're indigenous, uh, any preference over another Alaskan. So we all go through, you know, formalities um, and, you know, red tape to get hunting licenses or fishing licenses for certain areas. But that that provision was so scary to the rural Native community and the Native community that we turned out to vote in that kind of number and that kind of force. And, you know, interestingly enough, uh, Governor Dunleavy, um, who um, Donna had just mentioned, um, has just hired two new people within the fish and game to fight the Katie John ruling that gave Native preference. He is em empowering and emboldening the state division to, to bring cases uh, ag against the federal government that gives any kind of uh, allowance for the Native subsistence uh, rights. So it, it makes a difference. It, it, it all matters. It, it sure does. It sounds like hot issues definitely get Alaska Native to the polls. And Michelle, let's talk about another hot issue there in Alaska, uh, the Potola election. It was the first statewide use of ranked choice voting. And uh, since then, a lot of Republicans have come down really hard on, on ranked choice as a system that they say is rigged against them. Is there any evidence that ranked choice favors one party over the other? No, in fact, it was it was a really overall moderating force. Um, it it brought the, you know, there's there's there was a purpling since 2016 in the in the state house, and the Senate was always you know very very cozy uh, in a majority conservative lean, but it kind of 
switched out in 2020, um, and ranked choice voting in 2022 had had actually changed the Senate makeup so that it was uh, a more moderate bipartisan coalition. And the House, even though the majority uh, did not want want to work um, in a bipartisan coalition manner, a number of freshmen conservative lawmakers started breaking bread and working out and, you know, having fellowship with fellow members to say, we have common grounds. Let's start trying to decide what's best for Alaska instead of what's best for our party. And for Get Out the Native Vote, you know, we are a nonpartisan 501c3 voter education group. So, you know, as much as uh, we're, we're so very proud of, of Mary being in the House, um, you know, we're just here to tell you that ranked choice voting was not a deterrent for, for the Native vote. It did not turn us away. We had 5,000 more voters participate in August than we did in the June special primary. And then almost 6,000 more voters on top of that voted in November than they did in August. So we increased our vote in each election. It was three elections in six months. And it was, you know, with a whole new election law, it did not really um, dampen our enthusiasm to get out the vote. Mm -hmm. OJ, what is your thought on ranked choice voting? And um, could it have an impact in other states with large populations of Native voters? Uh, yeah, I, I totally uh, agree with ranked choice voting. Um, <laughs> again, Natives, I don't ever really think that they're you know, for one particular party, but they do vote for those individuals that pay attention and listen to what their concerns are. And so, you know, in some of the states, I think by having that type of uh, voting uh, may change the overall atmosphere of uh, native state county relations. So yeah, I, I, I'm totally for it. Michelle, what races are you going to be paying extra close attention to coming up next year, 2024? Well, we have, uh, because of redistricting, we have all 40 House seats up again. So, uh, you know, all of us tribal members, again, live in every precinct of the state. So, you know, we have a large blanket to toss uh, on voter education. Also make sure people do have a comfort level with ranked choice voting. And, um, we have our presidential election and the U.S. House race, so we will do our best to inform the public about everything that they're going to be seeing on the ballot. And the presidential race, how hotly do you think that'll be contested in Alaska? Uh, that's, you know, that's really to be determined. Um, there's been no real... Um, movement yet that that we can hear, you know, on the ground about people's uh, preferences. You know, we're all just, uh, you know, getting through the winter. We're all just figuring out uh, what to do since uh, the map, maps had been redrawn. And I also also want to get back to redistricting. I know that was a topic that, that you wanted to cover a little bit today. The fact that we had a first ever Alaska Native Speaker of the House gave him the ability to appoint a member the redistricting board, and he chose uh, an, an Alaska Native attorney. And the Supreme Court justice also got to choose uh, an appointee, and he chose um, a nonprofit, Native nonprofit director. So we had two Alaska Native women serving on a 5 2 um, majority 
redistricting board, and they held that three-person majority to account the whole step of the way. And it took the Supreme Court two decisions to say that they couldn't gerrymander their way with the maps. And then, even long story short, they were penalized $600,000 for trying to get away with that kind of gambit. So we're just a lot of hats off and props to the Alaska Natives that, that made such a difference in the redistricting process last year. Definitely, definitely. Thank you, Michelle. And let's talk a little bit more about redistricting and how it's impacting Native voters in the lower 48. And Jacqueline, I know that NARF is, uh, in addition to some other cases, is representing two tribes in North Dakota, the Turtle Mountain and Spirit Lake tribes. Uh, it's a redistricting case that is made more complicated by this recent federal appeals court decision. Uh, give us a little bit of background. First off, what are these tribes asking, and what is the status of those redistricting decisions? So, you know, the Turtle Mountain uh, tribe and the Spirit Lake tribe have successfully won in district court. The court has found that there's a voting rights violation um, and that they're entitled to a legislative district. Um, but the Eighth Circuit, in a different case, has made a really radical decision saying that folks can't, uh, that individuals and organizations and tribes can't bring claims under the Voting Rights Act, which is something that we sue under, um, and which an earlier ca caller was talking about, um, that we have rights that we can protect. And that's a really radical departure from, you know, every other case um, that has been brought um, you know, since the enactment of the Voting Rights Act. Um, you know, nearly 400 cases have been brought, and less than 100 of them were brought by the DOJ. The rest were brought by individuals. And so this was a real um, departure from precedent. And um, in our case, we have pled uh, under, you know, the Voting Rights Act and also under a different um, statute called 1983 that we can bring cases. Um, and so now the, the state is also challenging um, uh, our, our cause of action under this different um, uh, statute. And so really what's disturbing is that the state is challenging um, the means by which we're seeking relief and not the fact that, you know, the Voting Rights Act uh, has been violated. And we think the concern should be about the violation of the Voting Rights Act and making sure that, um, you know, tribal members have the right to the district uh, that they're entitled to. Now, there's a similar redistricting fight in Nebraska involving the Omaha and Winnebago tribes. Uh, can you give us some background on that case? Well, in that case, um, you know, the, the uh, Omaha tribe and the Winnebago tribe have successfully entered into a consent decree, meaning that the county agreed that there was a voting rights, uh, that there was a, a violation and agreed that, that they would uh, change the county um, uh, composition on their uh, county commission. So we were able to successfully reach settlement. But when we went to go enter the case, the court noted um, that they can't sort of just automatically approve the settlement because of this radical Eighth Circuit uh, decision. Um, and so they're asking for more briefing. We think we'll ultimately be successful there in getting that consent decree approved, but it just sort of shows the impact of these cases, um, uh, the way in which the Eighth Circuit is, you know, being so, um, uh, you know, blocking, you know, meritorious cases from going forward. Now, Jacqueline, in addition to the issues that you've shared with us today, the redistricting issues, uh, what's going on in Arizona, what else are you going to be paying extra close attention to next year with regard to Native voter access and uh, the upcoming elections? 
Well, MARF is going to be working diligently all next year. We're gearing up for a really big year. We know that there's going to continue to be, uh, you know, voter laws that come into place that are aimed at blocking uh, Native American participation. We know that there's going to be uh, challenges um, that folks continue to face uh, distances to polling places, um, lack of residential addresses, you know, the improper rejection of tribal IDs, um, and we're here to help. We will continue to monitor um, calls that come in for 1-800-R-VOTE, um, which we encourage folks to use and say that they're calling from Native land. That'll get directed to us. Um, we'll also have a poll watching program um, so that folks can feel safe when they're going to the polls um, and, and we can monitor what's going on in the ground. Um, and we'll just continue to, to bring cases. Um, and so, you know, we encourage folks to reach out to vote at narf.org if they've got issues, if they're facing issues. And we encourage everyone to vote. We know that a Native vote um, makes a difference, not just nationally, not just in this presidential election, which is so important, but locally um, at every community level, you know, school boards, county seats. Um, you know, water commissions, all of these things impact our daily lives. And we know that Natives um, vote in incredible, when they, when they vote, um, they have real tangible differences in their lives. And I just want to really quickly say, you know, um, for example, we had a redistricting case in Lyman County um, where we were successfully able to get a Native representation. And when there was a Native on the, on the county commission, you know, for the first time, they're going to start building a road um, into the county um, from uh, into tribal lands. Um, and I think that just having a Native person makes a substantive dis difference um, at all levels and all elections. Appreciate it. Appreciate it very much, Jacqueline. And Michelle, as we uh, close the show here, I want to make a special shout out to you and your two sisters. It's your birthday and you are a triplet. Is that right? <laughs> yes, yes. Koyana, thank you. That's really sweet of you. You bet. Well, uh, share, Michelle Spark, please share your, your two uh, sisters' names on the air, and then we'll go ahead and uh, wish them all a happy birthday. Oh, I will. Okay. Amy, Amy, her uh, chief name is Vanilla uh, and Jika, Jikuta. Um, she's in Juno, and Amy is uh working out of Anchorage and uh, really wish them a happy birthday and uh, we'll have to get together and celebrate in person soon. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, all of us here at Native America Calling wish the Alaska triplets a very happy birthday. And with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up the show. Uh, big thanks to our guests today, Jacqueline DeLeon, OJ Seaman Sr., and Michelle Spark. Join us again tomorrow as we take a look at Western science and tribal teachings of the Northern Lights. Hope you'll tune in. I'm Sean Spruce. Fry bread. That's the message. Support by Val's Fry Bread, providing her famous fry bread mixes and other products in wholesale and retail quantities at valsfrybread.com. Fry bread that will take you home, available wherever you live. Native American-made gifts at Ho-Chunk Inc.'s Sweetgrass Trading Co. include food, beauty, and wellness items from across Turtle Island. Christmas delivery available for orders placed by December 18th at SweetgrassTradingCo.com. Ho-Chunk Inc. supports this show. Our elders are sacred and deserve the best. 
check in with them and make sure they have health care coverage they need. For more information, visit healthcare.gov coverage or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.